So she says to me, yes, it is cancer and it's not your fault. And I remember looking into her eyes and what I thought were tears, but probably not because she's very stoic and thinking this woman has a lot of compassion, even though she probably tells this to people on a weekly basis. I'm really glad I chose this doctor because uh, she paved the way for me to not get on the internet and endlessly research, thus making myself feel sicker and more hopeless. And more importantly, she situated me in a place where I can deal with this disease on my own terms. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, communications specialist, and I am delighted to be joined with Ariane Anderson. She is a PhD candidate in health communication, researcher and teacher, and also a gynecology teaching associate. And she is here today to talk about navigating health and illness in a liminal space. So welcome, Ariane. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is a wonderful space to be in, uh, particularly when you're used to being in places of uncertainty. It's wonderful to be in a place where I know that people are going to listen and they're going to uh, maybe benefit. Yeah. And I love the fact that your topic is on navigating the system. It was wonderful when we had initially talked um, because that's the purpose of our podcast. And you've had a number of experiences that you're going to share with us today about um, your different roles and different moments of navigating through the system and really offering us advice for how you did that. Um, so really glad to have you on the show. Um, so, so, tell us, um, so tell us some of these moments. Maybe uh, first your opening story was, uh, it sounded like a cancer diagnosis. Yes, I, I had a female uh, breast surgeon who I went to, and I had found out in a, in a really unusual way, I was not uh, covered by any health care. Um, insurance. I had left my job as a, a clerical uh, uh, surgeon uh, center worker, and uh, lo and behold, I was uncovered, and I, who thought I could never get sick with something like this, was sick, and had to go to the health department, and long story short, was able to find, through a very compassionate ARMP, um, a uh, program that offered pro bono health care to uh, people like me who were uh, not uh, able to qualify for Medicaid. Uh, I earned a little bit too much and yet I was uninsured. So, um, and I found myself at this breast surgeon's office with the confirmation of this, this uh, diagnosis. And uh, interestingly, I had done everything right. <laughs> I had had uh, five children uh, very healthy life, lifestyle, no addictions, no um, excess that I could think of. I exercised regularly. I did, I did everything right according to all of the prescriptives that we are given, uh, World Health Organization at all, and uh, yet here I was ill. And so when she said to me, this isn't your fault, that was really a signal for me. Um, I took it that way. I don't know that she meant it that way, but it was like I was not going to uh, uh, turn over every stone and, and look and be super educated as much as I was going to um, allow myself to uh, 
uh, move through. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the stance I've taken. I've, um, I'm vigilant. I, I fend for myself, um, but I, um, I don't believe everything I hear. <laughs> and I don't... Um, I don't. I certainly don't believe marketing messages, and I th- it's interestingly, breast cancer, and uh, that has led me to look at um, some critiques of breast cancer awareness messaging, mm-hmm. and how we are told to be fighters. We are told to be victorious. That if we exercise hard enough, I mean, I've literally seen this during my, my first diagnosis, seeing little. Uh, um, inspirational stories of uh, news anchors and people like that on Fox News and other outlets where, um, you know, if we just try hard enough, we're going to, by golly gosh, we're going to overcome this and we're going to rise above and and be victorious. And realizing that so much of that is uh, what's embedded in in those messages is that uh, it's a kind of a hyper femininity. It's, um, class-based, it's very much uh, race-based, and, and uh, I think it's in some terms uh, misogynist because it really puts the onus on the disease carrier to, to work hard, and it's typically a female uh, who has breast cancer. And so I, uh, in studying some of this, I, I realized, boy, this is really how I felt all along. And I, too, have been on parade floats waving at people with a pink boa around my neck and watching crowds of people just in awe or in, in uh, sobbing and tears, uh, watching people like me um, kind of, you know, fight to stay alive. And um, so I, um, at the same time, you know, I'm kind of in two different places. I'm very much a participant who's a supporter of different initiatives to raise money and to um, further research. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm in very much in doubt of the, uh, the messaging and the and very often the profit motives that are behind it. So, um, yeah, she set the stage for me to be able to do that. Yeah, excellent. And um, you remind me of Laura Ellingson's uh, podcast on Realistically Ever After, you know, as you're talking about messages of, of cancer and being triumphant and winning and battle. And um, so there there's definitely a connection with that. Your, the title of this podcast was interesting because you, you're talking about navigating through the system and you've had a number of different roles. And so I wondered um, if you could just list and then maybe we can go into all of the different roles that you've had. So I know patient and we mentioned gynecology teaching associate. What other roles have you had in the healthcare system? Um, been a speaker. I've, I've spoken on behalf of integrative medicine approaches to both clinicians and families um, as a patient representative. <clears throat> I've done that on a number of occasions. I speak to a lot of undergrads uh, regarding uh, their health, particularly women's health issues. So I'm, you know, I'm a strong advocate as representing it, uh, the patienthood that we all at some point in our lives will face. But also as a, a health communication researcher, I'm trying to bring um, perhaps a, a, a mindset that we might be able to adopt. I mean, it's certainly not prescriptive to anybody, but a mindset that we um, are always at the same time vulnerable, but um, are able to look at the at the institution for what it is, yeah. 
the medical institution for what it is, and that is full of people and expertise. And you're also, you had mentioned um, to me before the, the podcast um, that you were an SP, which is a standardized patient too. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And you also teach in that capacity as well, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, so I was able through my institution to be able to get training to be a standard patient, uh, which is really very much built on scripts, uh, which will help pre-meds and residences and uh, various people who are being proctored at different times through their education. And so we are pretty much in the um, position where we just follow through with the scripts on on any given uh, case day and uh, present these cases so for them to go through their lists and do what is correct. Um, But also I've had the opportunity to be a gynecologic or gynecology teaching associate where um, typically there'll be two of us. One will be on the table and the other will be a teacher and we'll do the same things with the students, um, acting, enacting a script um, and then also guiding the student through the actual um, pelvic or breast exam and most of the time it's both. And then um, to further that, I've also been in institutions where I've uh, been able to go and do both. I'm literally sitting on the table and I'm teaching. And that is a a kind of a surreal situation, especially when you're a patient and I have a breast missing, it's gone. And so (laughs) when, of course, when I disrobe, you know, I have to prepare um, my students uh, ahead of time and say, okay, so, you know, time out. I, I need to tell you that there's not going to be two breasts that you're going to be looking at. And uh, that's okay. And here's the history. And so uh, invariably, uh, some of my own personal history will be mixed into that professional moment. And I find that when that happens, very often the student or the, the uh, physician who's getting a refresher, because sometimes it's with VA systems and so forth, well, uh, we'll be able to talk frankly about things, about disease, about women's health, and um, about emotional uh, approaches to patients and uh, interpersonal skills um, that are what they're doing well, what they're not doing well. And I, I so enjoy doing that because as a patient, I'm able to kind of reach out and touch uh, through my work um, areas uh, maybe to confirm that they are in fact doing fabulous jobs of caring for their patients, or in some instances they are completely forgetting that there's a supine patient laying there in a supine position completely at their mercy and they have absolutely no concept that this is a human body. So, uh, you know, two extremes, but um, which which I've encountered and I've actually had to yell sometimes at people to stop uh, to get their hand out of me, you know, while they're talking to their associate, <laughs> which is not uncommon, but um, it's it's gratifying work because um, I I guess I just I'm not shy, and uh, I have things I have to tell people, and I and I do believe that being a patient, a perpetual patient, because I have stage four cancer, um, really puts me in a better position to be able to just say this needs to be said. Period. Boom. And I think what you're talking about is a really good example of the liminal space. And I wondered for our listeners if you could very briefly explain what liminal space is in the context of being a standardized patient and how that really is a, a, a good example of, of, of both. 
Well, that's wonderful um, question. You know, Victor Turner um, came up with the whole idea, social anthropologist, um, uh, came up with this idea of uh, dwelling in a lemon, you know, kind of a sash, a door sash, window sash, of um, <clears throat> being a part of one community or a part of another community and how we are social animals and we, we really need to feel connected. And illness kind of throws us into this netherworld of um, not feeling connected terribly to, to much of anything because, of course, it's in the uncertainty that's there really does, its, does a job on us. Um, and it does it to us socially because people otherize us when they realize that our bodies are compromised or we, we become different. You know, maybe we think differently. And so as a standard patient, you are um, in the healthy world, but you are portraying uh, an unhealthy. And um, it, it's, it's this kind of like skating back and forth to each world as you're, as you're working and um, really drawing attention to that practitioner or clinician that you're, you're working with. <clears throat> this is the reality that your patients face. Okay, and, and of course, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I was just wanting to add that, and you're you are a chronic patient at the same time. You said, so being in this liminal space of betwixt and between worlds, you are in the world of medicine as a standardized patient, as an actual chronically ill individual at the same time, portraying someone who has a particular illness in order to help teach them about medicine. And, and that's sort of mind-boggling if you think about it. It is. I, I, it kind of inverts into itself over and over again, all of these circular kinds of things. And, 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 and that's okay because at, at the end of the day, we all agree, um, you know, this is real in this situation, this isn't. And all we can do is approach people, uh, approach that human patient, that human body as an individual in that discrete moment. That's really what I try to drive home in each and every circumstance. I'm curious about the most memorable moment that you've had as a standardized patient or as a teacher in um, the gynecology um, situations. Do you have anything that stands out for you that you think, oh my gosh, this really is about um, how to navigate the system and this is really about the importance of, of healthcare? Well, um, I have nothing that's really uh, earth-shattering as much as there's been a number of circumstances where, as I alluded to earlier, where the patient is in a supine position, um, laying it back on the table. And um, I've had um, one physician in particular, he was a um, very experienced practitioner, um, and he was pre a pretty cool guy, you know, kind of like a hang loose kind of guy, dude, you know, from Hawaii. And I, rem <laughs> I remember he, um, as soon as he was done with the pelvic exam and the bimanual part of it, he just turns right around, starts washing his hands and talking into the sink. Any questions, any concerns? And um, he turned back around and I said, doctor, you just left me laying here. And... Um, what if I do have some real concerns? Are you going to turn around from the sink and, and, and pause a few seconds and listen to me? Um, I'm an older woman. I've had a number of births. Um, what about a young lady? 
is she just going to over and over again, each time she meets someone who does that, uh, just dismiss uh, any kinds of concerns she might have? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's something to think about. So that has been uh, kind of an ongoing uh, experience, uh, irregardless of the uh, regardless of the uh, personality of the practitioner. That just seems to be a recurrent theme, where uh, I have to grab their attention and say it's in this moment right now. What was it like in your clerical position? We haven't had anyone on the podcast yet who either hasn't been a patient or a clinician in some capacity, and um, being a member of the staff is a really interesting sort of liminal space to be in, too. Um, and so I wondered if you could you know, share a story with us about what it's, what was like or a, a moment that stands out for you about being a staff member um, working in healthcare. Well, um, I did uh, all kinds of capacity, uh, served in different capacities uh, as far as insurance, verification, uh, coding, um, <clears throat> intake, um, uh, as well as just re being on the switchboard. So I, I was pretty adaptable. I, I guess I, I could say I'm an ideal person to talk about liminality, not, not that I'm an expert, and I mean, who could be an expert at, at uncertainty, but um, <laughs> being adaptable helps, I, I think, a little bit, just a little bit, um, and so I remember a patient who, I think I had to reschedule a urology appointment for, and apparently he had prostate cancer, and um, I, I remember he came in for his appointment early that morning he sat down and he just he wouldn't get back up to come to the window and I remember I, I went out to him and something told me just to kneel down next to him um, not to stand over him and say sir you need to do this and so I, I ignored the, my instinct to do that and just kneeled down instead and looked him in the eye to eye and I said um, are you okay? And it took a while to coax him, but he said, I'm scared. And I, I'm not a professional. I'm not supposed to counsel patients, but, um, I gently coaxed him back there and he was, he was fine when he left. And I, I've had numerous opportunities to do that within a healthcare setting. Um, and, you know, having the clerical and also the knowing the nurses and doctors really enabled me to have, the kinds of um, warnings inside that said, no, don't cross this line, health, you know, protect health information, all of those things. So that really, um, but yet being able to be compassionate. And it is, um, I, I have immense respect for healthcare workers of all different levels, the whole hierarchy from top to bottom, because um, it's, it's, a, it's a gamble every day, I think. I was just going to say that the role of a staff member, I wish I had more people who worked with clinicians on this show because their roles are so important and they really are very liminal in nature because you are neither a cl clinician nor a patient, but you are a patient and you have insight into the clinical world that most patients don't. 
And so you really are betwixt and between these identities. And I think that example is really um, illuminates the importance of um, having a staff role because you are able to say what you need to say to help this individual, not offering any clinical advice, but yet what you are doing is helping his health because you were able to talk to him and, and like you said, coax him back into, into the room. So let's get into some of the um, advice that you have for our listeners about how to navigate this complex system. Um, and I'm going to open it up and sort of let you, you know, where, where would you like to start? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think what's the main thing is uh, understand if you're ill, it isn't your fault. Okay, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you did some things that might have contributed to it, but you can't say that with 100% certainty. So, um, you know, a fixing fault and blame, I think, is what we do when we have an illness crisis or a chronic diagnosis. Is, and, and so avoid that. Uh, if you can get that settled in your head, I think that you can kind of put a, a game, a game uh, head on after that. So that if you are dealing with a chronic condition or a terminal condition, and in my case, you know, it's supposed to be two to five years of metastatic breast cancer, and I have uh, mets in my body <clears throat> in different locations, and, <clears throat> you know, I could um, easily, you know, think, oh, my time is limited, blah, blah, blah. No, I, I, I have neither that perspective or the perspective of, wow, I can beat this if only there's a cure. You know, I, I'm not fatalistic. Um, I'm somewhat hopeful. Uh, I'm pragmatic. So, um, you know, am I asking other people to think that way? No. I mean, we all have different personalities. I, I respect that. But I think that if we can <clears throat> uh, kind of put the perspective on, well, the disease is not necessarily my fault. It might be environmental. It might be these other things. Um but more importantly, how am I going to get the help that I need? I do highly recommend having a healthcare advocate, uh, a um, somebody who is a surrogate for you, if you are somebody who's dealing with chronic or terminal illness. Um, at the very least, have your paperwork done. Make sure that you um, have a living will. Those kinds of things. I think. Um, that will help you navigate because once you start planning in those terms, then it kind of opens up other, other ways of thinking for you. And so you kind of set yourself up for, for good things, really, in the long run. And one of them is having a medical surrogate. It doesn't have to be a family member. In a lot of cases, it's better that it's not. Or you can appoint two. In my case, I have one son who I know is extremely hard-headed who will uh, – you know, fight off any objections of my wishes being carried out. Not that that's safe, uh, foolproof, um, but it's it's a plan. And the other is a person who who lives uh, near me here locally, who is especially adept at communicating with other people. So, if I went to an emergency room in distress, I would have um, that person speaking for me, and she and I are in regular contact. Um, particularly during certain episodes, one of which I'm going through right now. So I'm pretty cognizant of that. Um, as far as 
Okay, so there's those uh, practical issues of having um, just very basic paperwork and having somebody that you know you can count on. This person doesn't need to be perfect. They just need you. Just need to get them. Have a have a body in your life. Okay, that you can say, okay, here's what's going on with my health right now. <clears throat> and if you don't do that, well, I don't know what else to say. Um, you've got to have at least one other person in your life that you can depend upon that way. Um, and I believe that you can. And that is um, always be mindful of this dialectic that I referred to earlier, which I am in every situation that, you know, this constant interplay of uh, patient autonomy and physician paternalism. And, and so when something doesn't go right, a lot of times it's like a seesaw. You know, you just got to look at it like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I need to advocate for myself better here, okay? Or I need to be that squeaky wheel. And unfortunately, nine times out of ten, the person whose body is, is being um, affected by illness has to do the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. You have to tell yourself that, okay, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to say it one more time. I'm going to have to make five more phone calls. Is that the ideal world? No, of course not. But we are dealing with human beings, no matter how much uh, artificial intelligence is out there and digital communication, we are still dealing with flawed human beings. And we ourselves are not perfect either. <laughs> okay. Anyway, and I speak first of myself. Okay. Can you tell us how you navigated through that experience? So what do you know now that you didn't know? before that allowed you to from beginning to end navigate through that particular encounter or that moment or that experience so having so having been um, a patient a standardized patient working um, in a clerical position a teaching associate what would you say are sort of like three insights things that you've learned that you would like to share with the rest of us that we may not know because you have such a, a broad spectrum of experiences um, in different roles within the healthcare system? Well, I would say that living in the moment, and I would really attribute the ability to do that to practicing some form of mindfulness and prayer, I think that that's an important thing. When you are dealing with uncertainty, and you are dealing with imperfect human beings and flawed bodies, what other go-to do you have? You know, you can't do mind over matter. You can't try harder. What you can do is avail yourself of the, um, the comfort, uh, the spiritual comfort that you can find. And for me, it's my, my relationship with, with God, with my creator. And so I find myself uh, meditating and praying. Um, and, and, and do I do that uh, on a regular basis enough to uh, maybe perhaps mitigate situations before they happen? No, I'm not perfect, but I do keep it as a generally as a part of my everyday. Yeah, it, re it reminds me of um, Will Miller and Ben Crabtree and some, some others who have written about the clinical hand. Um, and recognizing beyond the physical aspect of healthcare um, is also uh, the psychological, the emotional, um, the community, but also the spiritual. Um, and so the spiritual component being important as well. So I hear you say spiritual, um, 
and being mindful, which is definitely a theme on, on other podcasts, uh, interviews that we've had on this podcast. So we just recently had someone talk about the importance of mindfulness. What would be some other things, um, insights that you've had that you'd like to share with the rest of us about navigating through the system? Uh, we can't do it alone. We need support systems. We need support networks. Um, and they're out there, uh, no matter how alone one may feel, no matter how marginalized one may feel. Um, and so that's really the heart that I have wherever I go, wherever I, I want to see people that feel unseen. Mm-hmm. And so I think as communication scholars, as practitioners, clinicians, patients, caregivers, all, all of the above, I think we have eyes to see because of our experiences. And I think the most important thing is that we see and that um, when we do that, we begin to connect with each other and create stronger support networks, whether they're digital, face-to-face, it, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so I'm a part of an online metastatic breast cancer community. Um, is that a fail-safe for me? No, not necessarily, but it is a, a support network, uh, one of a number. My academic community is probably one of the most amazing support networks I've ever been a part of. It's really exemplified to me, um, you know, the praxis that really should be a part of every academician's life, that you put into practice what you're studying. And and my uh, mentors and professors do that. Um, I would say the third thing would be that, um, and it really kind of loops into the other two or connects to the other two, and that is that, uh, we're put on this earth. We're 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 here uh, to experience community um, in these imperfect bodies, and that at the end of the day, it's people that matter the most. And um, I think I was mindful of those things before my illness for these past ten years. But I really, um, I what I've gone through has sensitized me even more, mm-hmm. and it's not. It's something I can take credit for. It's it's what's happened to me, and I've decided I'm going to reframe my experiences uh, so that um, I'm able to 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 be um, approachable, and I'm able to approach others uh, and use what I've gone through, and sometimes just holding somebody's hand and suffering with them. Uh, well, very often that's the most powerful thing you can do. Oh, you know, I'm thinking in, in more pragmatic ways, you know, more uh, practical ways. I'm thinking that um, when don't be afraid to correct people. Mm. Don't be afraid to say, no, that hurts. Um, when it com- particularly when it comes to calling and trying to get appointments and trying to get what you want, don't think you're the only one that has to repeat yourself three or four times. Mm. Make sure you write down exactly what you want. I mean, you know, we've heard this over and over again, but I mean, it it bears repeating that um, the other day I was uh, trying to get an appointment and uh, with a new medical oncologist and, you know, patient relations did call my clinical team, I should say, and uh, I did get a call and I was, and so they were scheduling me after being put on hold for 15, 20 minutes and... (laughs) Um, the person took my information and was going to put me in with somebody else. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute. And by this time, I was so tired. 
I was so fed up. No, don't, don't give in. And I said, oh, no, let me correct you. So it's real simple things like that that I think we take for granted and we think we shouldn't have to do. No, you need to get exactly what you want. Don't accept what the system gives you. This is a very important thing to remember, I think. Ask for what you want and get and don't give up till you get it. Okay? Can, Can I, I tell you my story? Oh, yes, please, yeah. All right, so one of the reasons why I filled out a patient relations form was because I had had an incident a few months previous where somebody was taking a biopsy in my neck, and it was the, the doctor came in, introduced himself, and I was in this very supine position, had about six nurses around um, in the little um, operating room, and he had the needle in there, and he was taking the fluids and probably had to do about seven or eight because... What was being done was a foundational one test, which I recommend that anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer get a foundation one test. Every major institution will find the funding to pay for this, and that is this is not just a spit genetic markers test. This is a fluid or tissue test, and they will be able to isolate um, all of the very variables within your particular genetic markers to determine, um, is it BRCA1, BRCA2, is it, and it's not just breast cancer, it's all cancers, um, is it positive, negative, you know, all, all of these kinds of things that, that doctors need so that they can give you specific targets or you, to see if you qualify for immune therapies, which are on the rise, which you definitely want to take advantage of. But anyway, so he's doing this, and he refers to me as the patient as he's talking uh, blithely with the nurses. Mm -hmm. And so the patient will do this, and the patient will do that. And I finally, I had to speak up because I was at that particular point depressed, which a lot of us go move in and out of in our liminal illnesses. And um, did he care? Did he notice? No. And so I said, sir, would you please refer to me by my name? My name is Ariane. And, you know, I sounded kind of bitchy when I said that, but it didn't matter because there I was, the subject um, on whom he was, uh, you know, excising uh, some tissue, fluid. And uh, he kind of laughed and kept talking with the nurses. And then a few minutes later referred to me as this the patient again. So I thought, oh, goody, I get to say this again. So I did. And he laughed again and proceeded to do it a third time. And I said, I don't think you're listening to me. Would you please refer to me by my name? And at that point, I could tell he was a little put off. And I remember thinking as I got out of that chair, I must register a complaint because this man's a young man. It's not like he's an old stodgy guy and uh, he should know better that I'm a person and I have feelings and by God, I'm sick and tired of dealing with this. So um, unfortunately, patient relations never got back to me. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I, and, oh. and this wasn't a standardized patient session. This wasn't a made up. You're saying this actually happened to you as a patient. It did. It did, and and here here's Ariane, you know, the com health communication person who, you know, is, is is supposed to be this wonderful, competent 
a communicator, you know, having to basically be kind of bitchy. Well, standing (laughs) up for yourself. Yeah, it's not being bitchy at all. You know, there was patient autonomy right then and there enacted. And that was physician paternalism being a jerk, you know, in that particular case. So, um, yeah, don't don't give up. Don't give up. Excellent. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Ariane. Really appreciate you being a guest today. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here. And I'm so glad you do the work that you do. Well, it wouldn't be possible without people like you being on the show. And so for those of you who are listening, as a reminder, we would like to invite you to be on the show as well. If you are interested or know someone, you can find us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. There also is a blog, Nicole Deffenbaugh, N-I-C-O-L-E-D-E-F-E-N-B-A-U-G-H dot com slash blog. And we're on Twitter at Stories Health. So please leave a message. Let us know if you're interested in joining. We thank you again for listening this week, and we look forward to having you back next week. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.